0: The year, 1688. The place, the British Isles. One king is overthrown, and another is proclaimed, a victory so bloodless it is called the Glorious Revolution. But bloodshed is on its way, and the exiled kings will stop at nothing to reclaim the throne. I'm James Hauser, and welcome to Unknown Soldiers. Hey y'all, welcome to the Unknown Soldiers Podcast. Hope you guys are ready because this is the first episode of my first series. This is episode 11, The Jacobite Wars Part 1, The Exiled Kings. I am your host, James Hauser, and I am super excited that you guys are here for this. We are going to begin a longer story today by explaining how the Stuart Dynasty of England and Scotland lost their thrones and went into exile and how they tried to retake their lost kingdoms. This will lead into the next three episodes, which will detail the last and most dramatic attempt to retake those kingdoms, led by Charles Edward Stuart, Bonnie Prince Charlie of Scottish legend, and known to history as the 45. And I am so ready to tell you guys all about it. If you want a longer introduction to this story, if you need more context, I have released a short introduction, Introduction to the Jacobite Wars, on my feed. You don't have to listen to that. But if you want to know a little bit more about my focus, some basic level historical background about this time period, or the theme of this series, that's where you can find it. So I encourage you to go and take a listen. Did you listen? Good. Hope you liked it. If not, cool. Also cool. On with the show. Couple things I need to say. First, is not just history, but military history. So there's some dark and bloody stuff going on. The podcast is PG-13. Language is clean. Content is not. All my sources will be posted on my website, so if you want to know where I got my information, that's where you can find it. One big mega source post for the entire series will be available. Finally, any errors, mispronunciations, or mistakes are my own. I'm trying to be entertaining, but all the information I'm giving you is accurate to the best of my knowledge. This was a real story with real people who don't deserve to be unknown soldiers. So let's get into it. Our story today is a long one. If you looked at the running time, this is a little bit longer than a normal episode, and that's basically because I'm crunching a century and some change of British history into a single storyline. Since this is the first episode of a series, it only makes sense that today would be our context episode. Our big heaping backstory episode. Today's episode is critical context for the next three episodes, which will be exclusively focused on Bonnie Prince Charlie, the 45, the last rising of the Highlanders, and the final stand at Culloden Moor. I promise that absolutely everything I talk about today is going to come back in 1745. We're going to go pretty quickly through a decent heap of British history. I'm going to simplify it and streamline it a lot, but that's just a necessity. But I really want to start us off today With a question for you. Do you think, do you believe, that history travels in one direction? Is the tide of history inevitable? Were things always going to be this way, and could they have been different? Look around you, unless you're driving, in which case please don't do that. Could all of this have been completely different, up to and including you and me talking right now? There's this idea, right? that history is an unstoppable march of progress, where things keep improving towards some future perfection, and that all of history is a slow march in one positive direction. And this viewpoint isn't just limited to history, it's inherent in all sorts of political philosophies, all of which see the human race on a series of stepping stones toward progress. To mainstream historians of 18th century Britain, The March of Progress begins with the central event of today's episode, the Glorious Revolution, the overthrow of the Stuart Dynasty, and the ascension of William and Mary. It meant the creation of the British constitutional monarchy, the triumph of Protestant Christianity, the rise of capitalism, and the spreading of British culture and civilization across the world. These were things that were seen as both good and inevitable. American historians for much of history saw progress as westward expansion, economic growth, the triumph of science and industry, all part of the natural progress of humanity, unstoppable tide of positive change that could not be derailed. But what if it had been? What if it could be? Was that possible? Or even likely? Well, from the 21st century, we might see that as a distinct option. I think that my generation in particular, is less likely to believe in internal progress than any generation beforehand. Most of our visions of the future are bleak, not optimistic. But there is another way of looking at it. That maybe progress is not inherently good. That progress leaves people behind. That maybe the course of destructive so-called progress could be reversed. That what has been done can be undone. And if you believe the arc of history can be reversed, that the revolution can be undone, that maybe progress leaves people behind, and that things do not have to be this way, that's a common belief throughout history. We see people resisting what others call progress, whether they're right or not. In the 17th and 18th century in Britain, these people rallied around the Stuarts, the exiled kings, as the symbols of resistance to what some called progress. Progress their movement became known as the Jacobite Cause. Today, we'll be talking about the Glorious Revolution, the exile of the Stuarts, and the rise of the Jacobite movement. We're going to answer four big questions that provide critical context for the story of Bonnie Prince Charlie and the 45. First, who were the Stuarts? Second, how and why did they lose the thrones of England and Scotland in 1688? Third, what was the Jacobite Cause? Who was a Jacobite? And finally, how did the Stuarts and the Jacobites try and fail to regain the throne in 1715 and 1719? This will set us up for the truly climactic and dramatic story of Bonnie Prince Charlie, the Jacobite rising of 1745, and the Battle of Culloden. Now, I'll explain why it's important at the end of our story. Today is part one, and in part four, I'll tie it all together. You should care. And I'm going to tell you why. And because this is an epic story, even longer than usual, there will be several breaks. When I stop talking and the music comes in, it's time to pause, grab a beer, massage your feet. Do the thing you need to do. Oh, and for the record, all the music you'll hear today during said breaks is the music of Jörg Friedrich Handel, who was a British subject during this time period and is one of the most well-known and influential composers of English music. So, yes, this is contemporary music. It's not just random songs. It is contemporary, period appropriate music. Don't ever say I didn't do nothing for you. So, grab your wig and your fencing sword, and let's go on campaign. Where are we going, you ask? Well, we have to start in London, because it's time to meet the Stuarts. The Stuart dynasty had ruled as the kings and queens of Scotland since 1371, when David II, the last monarch of Robert the Bruce's House of Bruce, passed away. From that point on, the Stuarts had ruled Scotland not without some hiccups. Most famously, the Stuart, Mary Queen of Scots, had been overthrown in favor of her infant son, James VI, and fled in exile to the court of her cousin, English Queen Elizabeth I. So yeah, she got fired in favor of a baby, who, and then Elizabeth had her executed, deeming her a threat to the throne. So she got fired by a baby and then got murdered. It was one of the earliest signs of the miserable luck and record of agonizing failure that would plague House Stuart throughout its existence. The Stuarts are one of the unluckiest royal dynasties in British history, a phenomenon I will refer to from now on as Stuart luck. But in 1603, the Stuarts received a surprising stroke of good luck. Because in that year, Queen Elizabeth I of England, the last of the Tudor dynasty, died childless. She was called the Virgin Queen, and as we all know, virgins are notoriously bad at things like having children. This meant that the throne passed to her second cousin, the son of Mary, Queen of Scots, King James VI of Scotland. So our story begins as James VI of Scotland arrives to be crowned as James I of England, 1603. England, Scotland, and Ireland were under the rule of a single crown for the first time in history, which you'd think would make James a very powerful monarch, but surprise surprise, nah. Because the Stuarts inherited three deeply divided kingdoms, split along political, national, and religious lines. Their failure to overcome these divisions would plague them throughout their dynasty, cause the last Stuart King to lose his throne, and eventually lead to the failure of the Jacobite cause. The first issue was national. See, the Stuarts did not rule one kingdom. They ruled one, two, three kingdoms, England, Scotland, and Ireland. Ireland was a separate and distinct entity with its own parliament, but it was subordinate to England in basically every way, like England controlled Ireland. So the real conflict here is between England and Scotland with their separate laws, separate governments, separate cultures, and separate religious establishments. Imagine being like, I don't know, the captain of two different soccer teams. The Scots resented what they saw as subordination to the English because the Stuarts moved on to London in 1603 and basically never visited Scotland again. (laughs) It was inevitable that England would dominate Scotland if the two countries were ever united, and the Scots would always resist English influence over their country. The second issue was political. The Stuart kings all passionately believed in a political idea called the divine right of kings, or absolute monarchy. This was the idea that kingship was given by God alone, inherited by birth, and was an innate right that could not be lost no matter what the king did or how badly he behaved. And many people disagreed with this. This ended up being the most basic political issue that divided Britain over the next 150-odd years. Was the crown the personal property of the Stuart dynasty, a hereditary title that was their god-given right, or did the king hold power through law and the consent of parliament? The English and Scottish parliaments had no chill with absolute monarchy. Many Englishmen believed in the power of parliament over the king, while most Scots believed in the idea of a king as first among equals rather than as an absolute ruler. The kings could have ignored parliament, except that parliament controlled taxation and public finance, so whenever the Stuarts were broke, which was all the time, they had to tangle with parliament to get the cash they needed to run the country. Despite our vision of England as this military and economic superpower, compared to other European countries of the time, England was surprisingly weak in the 17th century, much less developed and centralized than other kingdoms, and this weakness could not be resolved until Parliament and the Crown learned to get along. (sighs) Now for our third issue, religion. Alright guys, this is a mess. Even some of the historians I've read give up midway through and say, dude, I don't know. The Scottish religious situation isn't just complicated, it's downright Byzantine, it's convoluted. So I'm going to make it as simple as I can, and I apologize in advance both for any mistakes I make and for how bonkers it is. I am simplifying this a lot. One thing you have to know straight up is that religion was much more important in the 17th century than it is now. It wasn't just a personal thing. It was your entire worldview and the basis for most of your political beliefs. Religion affected and was affected by everything in the 1600s. First off, both England and Scotland had established Protestant churches, state churches, that controlled the religious affairs of each kingdom. The Church of England, or the Anglican Church, as we all know, had been founded by Henry VIII when he wanted a divorce, the Pope said no, and Henry was magically a Protestant now. The result was that the Church of England was a religious revolution, a Protestant Reformation, from the top down rather than the bottom up. Its structure looked a lot like the Catholic Church, just with the king replacing the pope. That also included the hierarchy of bishops and priests, which is called an Episcopal structure. That's why the Church of England in America today is called the Episcopal Church. And this structure was what the Stuarts always preferred. The top-down organization of the English Church with the king at the head really synced very well with their ideas of divine right kingship the Scottish Church was different. The Scottish Protestant Church had been formed from the bottom up rather than from the top down. The grassroots Calvinist Protestantism of John Knox had been a key factor in removing the Catholic Mary Queen of Scots from the throne. Instead of the king being at the top, the Church of Scotland was run by a council called the Kirk, made up of ministers called presbyters, which is why we call it the Presbyterian Church. This almost democratic institution was very radical in religious and political ideas and was much more independent from the king's authority. The king could not boss the kirk around like he bossed the Anglican church around. But there were also divisions within each state church. Bear with me, right? In England, the Protestants were divided between the high church Anglicans, or those people who preferred a traditional structure closer to Catholicism, and the dissenters, who wanted to move in a more Calvinist direction like the church in Scotland. The dissenters included people like our old friends, the Puritans. In Scotland, the church was divided between the majority hardcore Presbyterians represented by the Kirk and a large minority that wanted the Scottish church to have a structure of bishops and priests like the Anglican church. This last group is the most important for our story, They were the Scottish Episcopalians, and they would always be the Stuarts' most hardcore supporters in Scotland, and would continue to be so down to Culloden. The Kirk hated the Episcopalians, hated, hated, hated them with a Puritan zeal. Then there were the Catholics. There were very small numbers of Catholics in England, and a slightly larger number in Scotland, and everyone feared and hated them. Thanks to stuff like Bloody Mary and the Spanish Armada and the Gunpowder Plot, British Protestants, especially dissenters and Puritans, were terrified of Catholics. Like, they lost their minds. Anytime something vaguely Catholic-looking happened, it was obviously a Catholic plot to impose Popish rule on their beautiful land. And this included anything the High Church Anglicans or Scottish Episcopalians did that smelled sort of Popish. British Protestants saw Catholics in every dark corner, underneath every child's bed. Anti-Catholic bias is a long constant in English history. Some people believed that they were in the end times, and the Pope was literally the Antichrist. And of course, Ireland was majority Catholic, ruled over by a small Protestant minority, and they were terrified of rebellion for very good reason. Because Ireland would break out in rebellion for any reason at all. So yeah. Before there were flame wars over who's the best Avenger, and the answer is obviously Captain America, there was crazy infighting over minute differences in religion that people in 2021 would barely register, but were deadly serious to everyone involved. Glorious. So here are the big questions. Will the British Isles be united or disunited? Will the Crown or Parliament be calling the shots? And how will this religious tangle be untangled? And guys... The Stuarts did not handle these issues well. The Stuart kings handled these issues so poorly, in fact, that one of them was executed and the last one was exiled for life. This was both because they were unusually unlucky, but also because when they made their own luck, they made bad luck. So let's look at these kings. Every one of them was a colorful character, and even though we're starting the story a long way from the Glorious Revolution, we need to at least meet these guys to understand why what happened happened. And also, I'm going to grade them. We'll see how well they do. You guys ready to get the cliff notes for a century of British history? Buckle up, kids. Let's go. First, we have James I, who ruled from 1603 to 1625. You've heard of him, even if you don't know it. Ever heard of Jamestown? Or the James River? Or the King James Bible? All named after our boy. He's one of my favorite people in history, because James I was just so awkward he had a torso too big for his legs eyes too big for his head and spoke with a lisp and a stutter which combined with the scottish accent made him the worst public speaker ever he's also likely to have been homosexual in a time when that was you know not allowed but james was a passionate advocate of the divine right of kings and wanted to centralize his realm he tried to unify his kingdoms into one super kingdom he could call it i don't know a united kingdom But no one else wanted this and he had to drop the plan. He also tried to promote the Protestant faith by recruiting a bunch of Scots, all of them hardcore Presbyterian, to move to Northern Ireland and settle in the province of Ulster. These settlers would become known as the Ulster Scots, or the Scots-Irish, and they were settled on land confiscated from Irish Catholics. Wow, gee James, I'm sure settling a bunch of Protestants on stolen land in Northern Ireland will have no repercussions hundreds of years from now. But other than that, James's reign was relatively peaceful, since he kept England and Scotland out of the Thirty Years' War, which was a party at which no one was having fun. There was one very big event in James's reign that you have probably heard of. A group of English Catholics tried to explode a bomb under Parliament on a day that James would be in attendance, clearing the way to restore a Catholic ruler to the throne. This plan was uncovered when one of the conspirators, Guy Fawkes, was caught with 36 barrels of gunpowder beneath the House of Lords. The day of the attempted gunpowder plot, the 5th of November, 1605, has been famous ever since, but what is less famous is the anti-Catholic hysteria that swept over England once the plot was uncovered. After all, this was a real-life, true-blue, Catholic plot to kill the Protestant king. All those paranoid Protestants had been right. Though anti-Catholic laws soon followed, and Guy Fawkes is burned in effigy every year on November 5th, even to this day, James managed to prevent the worst anti-Catholic laws from being passed. Just this just goes to show you how terrified people were of Catholics in this time period. So that's James I. Oddball, yeah, nice guy, peaceful leader, decent politician. Kept things from blowing up in his face. He left the Three Kingdoms not much better, but not much worse, when he died in 1625. So let's give him a B-. James' son was Charles I, who reigned from 1625 to 1649. Charles, just like his father, believed in the divine right of kings and wanted to unify the Three Kingdoms. But unlike his father, he had no tact, no political skill, and he just made everybody mad. Charles made the Presbyterian Kirk mad in 1637 when he tried to force the Anglican Book of Common Prayer on the Church of Scotland. This was because he wanted to unify the churches of England and Scotland, and this was a first step to that, but this somehow hit every Scottish panic button at once. The Scots freaked out about English dominance, absolute monarchy, and the sanctity of their Presbyterian doctrine, because this was obviously a Catholic plot, and they broke out in rebellion. He made the Irish mad when he confiscated more of their land to give to Protestants, and in 1641, they broke out in rebellion. Finally, to raise money to fight these rebellions, he pissed off the English Parliament so much that in 1642, they broke out in rebellion, launching the English Civil War. So yeah, Charles gets enough. The 1640s and 1650s were everyone's worst nightmare. Charles and his royalists lost the war, and Parliament ended up beheading Charles in 1649. But this was only one event in the rolling dumpster-on-fire disasters that are usually called the English Civil Wars. War and pillage and starvation and disease were everywhere. England fell under the control of the new model army and its top general, Oliver Cromwell who then went on a genocidal rampage in Ireland, defeated the Scottish Presbyterians in two different wars, and ruled the British Isles as a dictator until he died in 1658. Facing a total breakdown of order, Parliament invited Charles I's son, Charles II, back to the throne in 1660. And then, everyone sat down and had a really stiff drink, because, woo, trust me, that is like 10 episodes worth of material. But we just skipped over all of it. We have places to go. For our story, the English Civil Wars taught some very important lessons. Everyone was shocked and horrified by the destructive conflict, and many people would risk anything to prevent another civil war from breaking out. But they also remembered that when the king had been had pushed too far, he had been overthrown and executed. It happened once. It could happen again. After Charles I's mistakes, intelligent Stuart monarchs, like his son Charles II, would do well to step very lightly. Charles II ruled from 1660 to 1685, and basically his only job was to patch up the wounds of the Civil Wars. Now Charles wanted to push the envelope like his father had done, but he was attached to his head, so he played it pretty chill. One of the big, very important things Charles did do was to remove the Presbyterian Kirk from power over Scottish religion. They were just too radical, too much of a headache. Instead, Charles forced the Church of Scotland into an Episcopal, centralized structure dominated by bishops, which reflected the Church of England and the Stuarts always had this preference for a hierarchical church. The Scottish Episcopalians were put in power, and the Presbyterian leaders were driven underground, imprisoned, tortured, or even murdered. This period became known as the Killing Time in Scotland and devout Presbyterians prayed for the day when their persecution would end and, God willing, they would do some persecuting of their own. Other than that, though, Charles did very, very little to rock the boat. Instead, he spent most of his time hanging out with his massive, massive number of mistresses and lovers. There are many great stories about Charles and his parade of ladies, and they're all funny, gross, or downright bizarre, but I'm trying to stay on track here, guys. Okay. Okay, one story. So a bunch of Englishmen were upset that one of Charles' favorite mistresses, the Duchess of Portsmouth, was a Catholic, because, oh no, Catholic plot. When the king's court was on the move through England one day, a mob gathered around one of the coaches, thinking it was the Catholic Duchess. Instead, out popped the king's other favorite mistress, Nell Gwynne, who reassured the crowd, Pray, good people, be civil. I am the Protestant whore. Yeah, so Charles was cheating on his wife like he was in some kind of contest, but he kept things relatively quiet. Despite the Great Fire of London, the Great Plague of London, military defeat by the Dutch, Stuart Luck, at least no new civil wars broke out, so let's give him a C-. But Charles left trouble for the future and how he managed the succession. Charles had a metric crap ton of illegitimate kids running around, but his own queen was childless. This meant the heir to the throne was Charles' younger brother, James. Which would have been fine, except that James was… a Catholic. The fact that a Catholic stood to inherit the throne caused many English Protestants to predictably lose their minds. The last Catholic on the throne had been Bloody Mary, and she had burned Protestants alive. The resulting dilemma in English politics became known as the Exclusion Crisis after three bills that Parliament tried to pass to ban James from the throne. This crisis resulted in the creation of the first English political parties. The Whigs. The Whigs stood for the rights of Parliament, Protestant supremacy, and limitations on the power of the king. They were trying to get the Exclusion Acts passed to prevent Catholics like James from rising to the throne. The Tories, on the other hand, Tories stood for royal power, traditional kingship, and high church Anglicanism along with Catholic tolerance. They supported hereditary succession and the divine right of kings, so they supported James and opposed the Exclusion Acts. But Charles would not be moved. He believed in the divine right of kings, and if it was God's will that his brother James become the Catholic king of a Protestant nation, so be it. The Exclusion Acts failed, and the Tories won. In 1685, Charles II died after 25 years of relative calm in England and Scotland. One of his dying wishes was that his ministers do not let poor Nelly starve, referring to his Protestant mistress. He said this in front of his wife, who was crying too hard to be angry apparently, because that's the 1600s for you. So it was that his Catholic brother became James II, King of England, Scotland, and Ireland. James II reigned from 1685 to 1688. His brother Charles had kept a lid on things and prevented civil war from breaking out for the last 25 years. James would screw it all up in four. Now, he might not have, if he was a good politician, or had common sense, or been less stubborn, or been a better judge of character, or been lucky. But none of these things were true. See, Even though the Whigs weren't super excited about a Catholic king, no one wanted to risk a civil war. Besides, James didn't look like he could do that much damage. He was already in his 50s, so hopefully his reign wouldn't last too long, and there were plenty of laws that kept him from packing the government with evil Catholics. Finally, James II had no sons, only two daughters, Mary and Anne, both good, decent Protestants. James and his Catholic wife, Mary of Modena, had been childless for years. So Whigs, who were pissed off about having a Catholic king, could rest assured that James's reign wouldn't last long, and once he kicked the bucket, his Protestant daughter Mary would sit on the throne. So they just had to tough it out. Now, there were rebellions in England and Scotland as soon as James came to the throne, but the vast majority of James's subjects, both Whigs and Tories, refused to back these uprisings and they were defeated. This made it even clearer that the Whigs would tolerate James, as long as he played it cool. He had it made. But James was determined to screw up a good thing, because even when the Stuarts had good luck, they found a way to screw it up. He began to raise armies in England and Ireland, supposedly to fight those rebellions, but these armies were packed suspiciously full of Catholic officers. When the English and Scottish parliaments got upset at him, he just sent them home and ruled by decree, behaving suspiciously like his dad, who, if you'll remember, had gotten his head chopped off. He continued Charles's anti-Presbyterian campaigns in Scotland with frightening intensity. He began appointing Catholic officials to all the high posts in government, illegally, suspended judges or priests who had anti-Catholic views, and even threw a bunch of bishops in the Tower of London when they rejected his new pro-Catholic proclamations. James bent English law into a horseshoe to get his Catholic-friendly policies imposed, and he showed no signs of slowing down. Everything he did favored the, like, 1% of Englishmen who were Catholic, and ran against the grain of English public opinion. And he just didn't care. When people said, don't be so Catholic, you're making everybody mad, James was twice as Catholic, just to show them. But all this looked harmless compared to what happened next. See, news had come out that after being childless for 15 years, Queen Mary of Modena was pregnant. On June 2nd, 1688, she gave birth to a son. The newborn, James Francis Edward Stuart, was now heir to the thrones of England, Scotland, and Ireland, and he was baptized as a Catholic. This was the last straw. The Whigs had been able to tolerate King James constantly hitting their panic buttons because there was a Protestant light at the end of the tunnel and her name was Mary. But now that light at the end of the tunnel had vanished, and they were staring down the barrel of a Catholic dynasty that could last for decades. For many Whigs and even some Tories, their backs were against the wall. When James had taken the throne, civil war seemed unthinkable. Now it seemed inevitable, unless they acted quickly they began to talk privately and quietly about revolution. For their salvation, they looked to James's daughter Mary and her husband, William of Orange, statholder of the Dutch Republic. James II was the fourth Stuart King to sit on the thrones of England, Scotland, and Ireland. It was his own darn fault that he would also be the last. Oh yeah, before I forget, James gets an F. Real quick, what else is going on in 1688, the year of the Glorious Revolution? When is this exactly? Well, it's a few years before the Salem Witch Trials, which takes all that fun religious stuff and just cranks it up to 11, and a few decades before George Washington will be born. Last year, Isaac Newton published his Principa Mathematica, containing most of his famous laws of physics. Johann Pachelbel is composing music, and the first oil lamp street lighting was placed in London a couple of years ago. John Locke is formulating his political ideas, many of which will be embodied in the Glorious Revolution. People still don't know what germs are. Everyone is wearing a wig, crazy long black wigs, and they're usually kind of gross. Hope that helps. With the Catholic King James II hitting every English panic button at once as hard as he could, a small circle of elite Protestant Englishmen decided to act. In June 1688, these men, later known as the Immortal 7, sent a message to William of Orange, stadtholder of the Dutch Republic and husband of James's eldest daughter Mary. This letter told William that if he landed with an army, the Whigs would rise up and support him. They would help him overthrow the Catholic tyrant in favor of his decent Protestant daughter. So I know we've been laser-focused on Britain for the first part of this episode, but now we need to zoom out and look at Europe as a whole. There is one big fact you got to know about Europe in this period. France is the 800-pound gorilla in the room. France is the strongest, richest, most influential land power in Europe. King Louis XIV ruled a super-centralized, powerful, very Catholic kingdom as the absolute divine right monarch that every Stuart king dreamed of being. The Stuarts had always been fairly friendly with Louis XIV, too, which did nothing for their popularity with English Protestants. William of Orange was Louis XIV's arch-nemesis. His leadership had saved the Protestant Dutch Republic from near-destruction by French armies in the year 1672. But Louis was gearing up for war again, and William was not super confident about the survival of his country if England allied with France. James's pro-Catholic stance and historic friendship with France made this a very real danger. But the invitation to overthrow James II gave William an opportunity to get England in his column. By binding England and the Dutch Republic in an alliance, he could safeguard both his homeland and the future of the Protestant faith in Europe. William didn't do what he did out of any concern for British Protestants. He did it to secure the Dutch Republic's survival in a European environment of pretty cutthroat power politics. So in July 1688, William began to prepare an invasion force that would cross the English Channel, remove his father-in-law from the throne, and put his wife and not coincidentally himself, in power. These preparations were obvious to everyone. Everybody knew what William was planning, but the French were temporarily distracted fighting in Germany. King James II also knew of the Dutch plans, but he was pretty confident that he could fight them off. The English army and the Royal Navy should have been more than enough to deal with William's invasion, but many of their officers had been alienated by James's pro-Catholic policies. Admiral Edward Russell was secretly one of the Immortal Seven, and he would make sure that much of the Royal Navy would stay out of the way during William's crossing. On October 29, 1688, William of Orange set sail from Amsterdam with his invasion force. The Dutch fleet sailed into the English Channel, and some of James' supporters in the Royal Navy did try to interfere. But an easterly wind kept James's ships in port, while blowing William and the Dutch fleet down the South English coast to their landing site. The Whigs would refer to this as divine intervention, the Protestant wind that saved English liberties and government from the Catholic tyrant James II. William and his army came ashore in southern England on November 15, 1688. As William marched towards London, James assembled an army to face the invader. The stage was set for an epic military confrontation, but that great battle would never happen, because the Stuart Dynasty's supporters were quietly slipping away like people leaving an awkward party. Nobles, members of parliament, and even James's own generals were suddenly not showing up for work, then popping up like magic in William's camp. The most obvious sign how things were going was when James' own daughter, Anne, went over to her brother-in-law's army. Anne was quiet, shy, and timid, so her defection showed just how badly things were going for James. William and his army got stronger and more confident the closer they got to London, and James's supposedly loyal units began to disintegrate. Seeing which way the wind was blowing, James sent the Queen and her newborn son to safety in France. But despite the pleas from one of his top generals, the Scottish Viscount of Dundee, James decided to flee as well but then he ended up being captured by a bunch of English fishermen and brought back to London in chains, which was a low point even for the Stuarts. On December 17, 1688, cheering crowds greeted William's entry into London. And just like that, it was over. But now William faced a thorny issue. What to do with his prisoner, the man he had just overthrown? William didn't want to kill James, not really. After all, Mary had made it pretty clear that she was upset by the whole situation, so if William executed his father-in-law, he would probably be sleeping on the couch for the next few years. So on December 23rd, as his guards conveniently looked the other way, James II escaped England on a boat for France, and exile. The long exile of the Stuart dynasty had begun. With William and Mary now in London, they summoned a new parliament. Since this whole thing had basically been a foreign military coup, even if the Whigs had agreed with it, Parliament decided to just slap a legal coat of paint on the whole affair. On February 6th, 1689, they declared that by deserting England, James had forfeited the throne, which is a pretty dubious legal interpretation of what happened. And here's the important part. Parliament officially offered the crown to William and Mary. A week later, on February 13th, they were proclaimed joint monarchs of England, becoming King William III and Queen Mary II. But there was a catch. On the day of William and Mary's coronation, Parliament forced them to listen to the Declaration of Right, which laid out the crimes of James II, the rights of Englishmen, and the limitations on the king's power. This was followed by Parliament's enactment in December 1689 of the English Bill of Rights, which established firm limits on the power of the king, including the requirement for regular elections, no taxation without Parliament's consent, and no standing army without Parliament's consent. That's why we call the British army the British army and not the royal army, because the British army belongs to Parliament, not the king. The Bill of Rights also banned cruel and unusual punishment, guaranteed the right to bear arms, the right to petition, and the right to trial by jury. Gosh, doesn't that all sound familiar? But the important thing about all of this was that Parliament was, above all, now in control. After all, Parliament had removed one king and put another in his place, and if the king acted up, they could do it again. The Stuart ideal of absolute monarchy of the divine right of kings had been rejected in favor of constitutional monarchy, where the king's power has legal limits and he rules only by the consent of parliament. Though William would clash with parliament a few times during his reign, they were now firmly in the driver's seat for the rest of British history. This was not democracy, lord no, but a big step in that direction. The ascendancy of William and Mary and the establishment of constitutional monarchy in Great Britain has gone down in European history as the Glorious Revolution. It was glorious, of course, because there was none of that terrible bloodshed or devastation that had happened during the English Civil Wars. Well, not in England, at least. Because even as William and Mary were settling into their new digs, the Glorious Revolution was already under attack. War had broken out in Ireland in Scotland. James II was trying to mount a comeback. It would be the first, but not the last, time that the Stuart dynasty would attempt to regain their thrones. The glorious revolution had been achieved, but it had started a series of conflicts across England, Scotland, and Ireland that would last for another six decades. The First Jacobite War had officially begun. All the Whigs had wanted to do when they sparked the Glorious Revolution was stop the Catholic plot and restore good Protestant rule to England, but they also, by working with William, dragged England into the great European wars that had been going on for the last several decades. France had already declared war on the Dutch Republic, and in the middle of 1689, Louis XIV also declared war on England. This merged our British Game of Musical Thrones into a much bigger war going on in Europe that would come to be called the Nine Years' War. And to be honest, you don't need to know much about the Nine Years' War for this series. There's going to be all these big wars going on in Europe throughout this entire series between England and its allies and France and its allies, but they're all pretty peripheral, though they have an impact. They're all pretty peripheral to the actual story. All you need to know is that the Nine Years' War consisted of seriously almost every country in Europe dogpiling on top of France, because Louis XIV's France is the 800-pound gorilla in the room and everyone is terrified of it. To get some of these dogs off his back, though, Louis had an ace in the hole. When the exiled James II and his family fled to France near New Year's Day, 1689, Louis XIV greeted them with open arms and an open purse. Louis saw James and his family as a handy weapon that he could use against his arch nemesis, William of Orange. By sending a steward to the British Isles with guns, troops, and money, or even just threatening to do that, Louis could keep William busy for ages while he ran around conquering Europe. James was 100% on board. From where he stood, it was entirely possible to launch his own invasion with French support, pull an Uno reverse card on his daughter and son-in-law, and reclaim his kingdoms because while England might have accepted William and Mary, there were still two other kingdoms to worry about. The first was Ireland, which waited about two seconds after the Glorious Revolution to melt down into chaos. Even as William and Mary were being crowned in London, a pro stuart army was just rampaging around Ireland challenging their authority. The Irish Catholics, looking for revenge and trying to get their land back after decades of oppression, committed atrocities against the Northern Scots-Irish Protestants, causing a massive refugee crisis and getting everybody panicking about the Catholic plot. This was a major emergency for the new regime, and it then it got worse. On March 12, 1689, less than three months after he had fled England, James II landed in Ireland with around 4,000 French soldiers as backup. By April, the mixed French-Irish army had reconquered almost the whole island in the name of the Stuarts, except for a few Protestant holdouts in the north. So that's one crisis. Meanwhile, in Scotland, the Scots had called a convention to decide what to do about the new situation. Multiple issues came boiling up when they met in Edinburgh in March 1689. The Scottish Presbyterians, who had been persecuted for three decades in the killing time, were obviously anti stuart but a large minority of Scottish Episcopalians and Catholics supported the Stuarts. They were led by John Graham of Claverhouse, the Viscount of Dundee. Dundee was a professional soldier, a Scottish Episcopalian, who had been one of the chief agents in persecuting the Presbyterians. And Dundee's pro-Stuart faction had a lot of say in the convention. After all, the Stuarts were a Scottish dynasty, and these groups knew that their religious freedoms would not be safe if the kirk was back in power so the scots were really on the edge they could go either way the convention was still debating whether or not to back the Stuarts when they received a letter from james ii the letter was supposed to persuade the scots to join the jacobite cause but because james was a garbage politician both in and out of power his letter demanded that the convention acknowledge him as king and threatened to punish anyone who did not comply but james had badly miscalculated the scots had always viewed their kings as first among equals so james's absolute monarchist behavior tilted things in the opposite direction the scots said screw you james and the convention formally offered the throne to william and mary but the Viscount of Dundee refused to accept the vote. He rode off into the Scottish highlands and raised a small army. What he ended up putting together would be known as the first Jacobite rising in Scotland and featured the same groups that would make up all Jacobite risings in Scotland, Highland clansmen and Northeastern Episcopalians. Now we're gonna talk all about the clans later this week in a supplemental short round. What you need to know today That the Highland clans were fierce and dangerous, a powerful battlefield force. But they were unruly, difficult to control, and very hard to motivate. So when Dundee did call out the clans in the early summer of 1689, only 2,000 men came out to support him. But still, now Scotland was in chaos too. William of Orange had launched his invasion of England in order to gain support to help the Dutch fight the French. But how was he supposed to go fight the French if Scotland and Ireland were rolling around on fire behind him? As much as William wanted to run back to the European continent and brawl with Louis XIV, he couldn't do that until he had dealt with the other two British kingdoms, especially since Parliament was screaming their heads off about the evil Catholics in Ireland. So while William prepped an army to go over to Ireland and beat up his father-in-law, he sent a small force north under General Hugh Mackay, their mission was to defeat Dundee and his Scottish army. On July 27, 1689, the two forces met in the Highland Mountain Pass of Killa Dundee lined up his 2,000 Highlanders, all geared up for battle with their broadswords and their tartans. They faced General Mackay and his 4,000 Dutch, English, and Scottish troops. Dundee was an inspiring, bold military commander and led his Highlanders in a dramatic charge against the forces of King William. The Highlanders shattered the Williamite army, but at a terrible cost, because Dundee received a mortal wound to the head in the midst of his victory. As he lay dying, he asked his aide who had won the battle. Dundee was told that while the day went well for King James, it had gone badly for Dundee himself. His last words were, If it is well for him, it matters the less for me. Turned out, though, it was not well for King James. Even though the Battle of Killacrankey was a complete Stuart victory, the death of Dundee turned it into a disaster. This would reveal one of the core weaknesses of any Jacobite or pro-Stuart uprising in the future. Without good leadership, the rebellion would always fall apart. No one else could hold the clans together like Dundee had, and within weeks, the Highlanders melted away back to their homes. The Scottish Rising of 1689 was over. The bad luck of the Stuarts had won again. That left Ireland. In 1690, William crossed over to Ireland with a large English and Dutch army and attacked James's French and Irish army. James was completely defeated in the Battle of the Boyne, and he decided to throw in the towel and ran back to France. The war in Ireland would continue, but after the Battle of the Boyne and James turning tail and running, it was only going to end one way. William's forces gradually overwhelmed the resistance, and in October 1691, the Treaty of Limerick ended what is now called the Williamite War in Ireland. William allowed the 12,000 remaining Irish Jacobite troops to set sail for exile in France as part of the peace deal. These troops would start a long tradition of Irish Catholic units in the French army, units that would come to be called the Wild Geese. For the next century, right up to the French Revolution, the Wild Geese of the Irish Brigade would make up a significant and elite unit of the French army, numbering almost 30,000 men at their height. If you were Irish and you wanted to shoot at the English, and who could blame you, your best bet was to hop over to France and join the Wild Geese. But the Williamite war in Ireland and the Treaty of Limerick also destroyed the Jacobite movement in Ireland, the pro stuart movement. First off, all those Irish troops going to fight for France meant that there was very little resistance left in Ireland itself. William oppressed the Irish Catholics with extreme vengeance. Irish Catholic land was confiscated and given to Protestants, and the Catholics were stripped of most of their rights and freedoms. William stomped the Irish so hard, and future British governments would keep such a strong garrison in Ireland that they would not launch another major rebellion for a hundred years. The Williamite War basically removed Ireland from the board. From now on, Scotland would be the real path for a Stuart restoration. With Scotland and Ireland both secure, William and Mary could settle down to rule, They had overthrown James II, but this meant more in the long run than a new name on the office door. The new boss was not the same as the old boss. The Glorious Revolution would dramatically affect three issues I brought up at the beginning of this episode. National, political, and religious. There would be a new settlement, a new order as I call it, in the British Isles. And in the 20 years from 1688 to 1707, the new order would come into being. We already saw how the political problem had been resolved when Parliament took the throne from one king and gave it to another. This confirmed that Parliament, not the monarchy, was now the dominant partner in English government. But William's ascent also brought the British Isles into war with France. This, this right here, is where the famous long-term rivalry between these two countries began, really. Britain and France would end up fighting seven enormous wars from 1688 to 1815, which created a need for greater government power and a large Royal Navy, and a competent British army, and especially big honking gobs of cash. And with Parliament now in the driver's seat, they were suddenly much more willing to cough up the resources needed for these wars. The triumph of Parliament, the pressures of war, and a sudden influx of new ideas ended up sending the British government and economy into overdrive. New institutions sprang up in the 1690s to meet the new demands of warfare and centralized government. I'm talking things like the Bank of England, the stock market, the national debt, joint stock companies, insurance companies, all of which were necessary to fund and support the expansion of British power. Before 1688, Britain was a weak nation on the outer edge of European politics, with a lot of economic potential but no real power. After 1688, the English economy broke its shackles and began its rise to superpower status. Some people call this the Financial Revolution, the rise of modern capitalism and global economics that accompanied the Glorious Revolution. But the Glorious Revolution had different effects on Scotland. In return for supporting William & Mary, the Scots demanded and got the Presbyterian Kirk placed back in charge of religious affairs. The strict dogmatic Kirk was now back in charge, more eager than ever to persecute the Episcopalians who had been persecuting them for the last several decades. The wheels on the religious persecution bus go round and round. This caused the Episcopalians, who had previously just been one faction of the Church of Scotland, to secede and create their own Scottish Episcopalian Church. The Episcopalian movement would remain very strong in Scotland, especially in the Northeast around Aberdeen and Perth. For decades after the Glorious Revolution, the Scottish Church would be torn apart between the Presbyterian Kirk, which supported the New Order, and the Episcopalians, who still supported the Stuarts. These religious divisions within Scotland were exacerbated, not ended, by the Glorious Revolution. But things only got worse for Scotland. As the wars with France dragged on, the Scots became increasingly aware that all the power was being concentrated in London, all the economic power, all the political power, all the military power. The Scottish harvests of the 1690s were incredibly poor, and food prices had risen, causing some of the worst and longest famines in Scottish history. Eager to gain some of that trade that England was beginning to monopolize, the Scottish elite, the Notables, tried to found a trade company of their own, the Company of Scotland, to compete with the East India Company. After a whole bunch of hopeful Scots invested a huge sum of their money in this company, its scheme to set up a colony at Darien in Panama collapsed in total failure, leaving the Scottish economy on the brink of ruin and many Scottish nobles and high officials almost broke. Many Scots became convinced that only union with England could revive their nation's prosperity. The final act of the Glorious Revolution was set in motion. The English government would only agree to bail the Scots out if they agreed to a union with England. Most Scots, like 80% of Scots, opposed this law, this act of union, since it would mean an end to their independence and autonomy but the English applied the carrot and the stick. They banned Scottish imports from England and even threatened to deport all Scots from English soil, which would have finally destroyed the Scottish economy. But the English also bribed members of the Scottish Parliament, especially those who had lost money in the Darien scheme and who were broke, to vote for union. The game was rigged. So in 1707, the Scottish Parliament, after much heartache and wrangling, met to vote on the Act of Union. Scottish objections to Union were loud and angry, with some Scots pleading almost desperately for their countrymen not to throw away their freedom, their independence, their very country. One very notable speaker even compared this to the Scots stabbing their mother Caledonia in the back, murdering her, sacrificing her for their own profit and interests. But the tipping point came when the English guaranteed to respect the supremacy of the Kirk, which convinced the final few holdouts to vote for union. The Act of Union was passed. The Scottish Parliament had voted itself out of existence. England and Scotland officially became the United Kingdom of Great Britain in 1707. The new order was completed. The Glorious Revolution had come to fruition. So this was the new order that the Glorious Revolution had created, a united kingdom of Great Britain, governed by a constitutional monarchy under a Protestant supremacy with a booming globalist capitalist economy that funded a powerful and expansionist army and navy. Now, doesn't that sound more like the evil supervillain-style Great Britain that we all know and love? But, what if the new order didn't work for you? What if you objected? What if the system puts you on the outside looking in? Well, you might become a Jacobite. Now that James II was in exile, and the New Order had gained control of England, Scotland, and Ireland, the Jacobite era had truly begun. Much like the Targaryens in Game of Thrones, for a nice little pop-cultural reference, the Stuarts were constantly trying to find a way to come back and reclaim their kingdoms. Their supporters would become known as the Jacobites. The term comes from the Latin equivalent of James, that is, Jacobus. Now don't you go calling me Jacobus, I will not tolerate that. So those people that, for whatever reason, supported the return of James II and his descendants to the thrones of Britain would become known as Jacobites, supporters of James. Their cause would be called the Jacobite cause, their attempts to return the Stuarts to the throne would become known as the Jacobite Wars. So that's what a Jacobite is by definition. But why? Why would someone become a Jacobite? Do you just wake up one morning with a heart full of Jacobitism? This is a big, complex topic, which lots of much smarter people have written very long books about. But I'll make it simple for you with one phrase. If you were part of a group that was alienated by the New Order, if the system wasn't working for you, you were much more likely to be a Jacobite. Let's start with the big reasons we've been hitting throughout this episode, the big divisions, political, national, and religious. So you got the political Jacobites. You might call them the ideological Jacobites. That is, they believed in the divine right of kings and absolute monarchy. According to these people, James II and his heirs were the rightful kings of England and Scotland, William and Mary had stolen the throne, and the Stuarts deserved to get it back. People who believed that James II had been robbed of the throne had strong beliefs about government, society, and tradition. Most of them were political Tories, political conservatives. They believed in traditional rights and laws, and thought in terms of a divinely appointed hierarchy on earth, of which the Stuart Absolute Monarchy had been a core component." This also jived with religious ideas of high church Anglicanism and Scottish Episcopalianism, which valued the hierarchy and order that was reflected in the structure of their religions. To these people, the Revolution of 1688 had disrupted the natural order. The Glorious Revolution knocked everything out of place, and only the return of the rightful kings could put it right. In Jacobite eyes, the Glorious Revolution was disorder, chaos, opposition to the will of God it had to be undone. So these were the political Jacobites, and they tended to be strongest in England. The Scottish and Irish Jacobites, on the other hand, tended to be motivated more by national and religious reasons that had nothing to do with natural order or divine right. Now, Jacobite sentiment in Ireland was always strong, which just makes sense, It was the Irish Catholics' only real way to get their rights and privileges back. They'd been crushed and persecuted by William of Orange. They had no love for the new order. But the constant pressure of about 12,000 British troops garrisoned in Ireland meant that there was no prospect of a Jacobite uprising. Lots of Irish exiles continued to leave Ireland and join the Jacobite movement abroad, but nothing was happening in Ireland itself. Scotland was a different story. Scotland would always be the main Jacobite stronghold, which is why it's the focus of this series. The very large Scottish Episcopalian minority was constantly persecuted, and they knew that only the return of the Stuarts could restore their church and its divine hierarchy to its rightful place. The much smaller Catholic minority pitched in too, because they weren't doing too hot either. In fact, if you were Catholic, you were almost certainly ideologically aligned with the Stuarts, for duh, obvious reasons. But the single biggest issue that drove the Scottish people to Jacobitism was that many, many Scots hated, hated, hated the Act of Union that had bound England and Scotland together, and they wanted to see it undone. I think I mentioned something like 80% of Scots are estimated to have opposed the Act of Union when it passed, and the Scottish desire for separation from England was the single greatest factor in Scottish Jacobitism. This did not necessarily mean independence. It might just mean the old status quo before 1688, when England and Scotland were two separate kingdoms with one Stuart King. But still, the Scots wanted their autonomy back. That was the biggest Scottish Jacobite motivator. So you have national and religious reasons combining in Ireland and Scotland to support the Jacobite cause, along with mostly political reasons in England. These various strands, Romantic traditionalism, Scottish and Irish nationalism, religious mysticism, and a strong belief in the natural order combined into the general mindset, the general milieu, I guess, of the Jacobite cause. But there was a fourth and newer reason to be a Jacobite, and this is the economic issue. The Act of Union had created one of the largest free trade zones in the world between England, Scotland, and Ireland. But as with all free trade and capitalist policies, some people were left behind. Capitalism by its very nature, good or bad, that's your opinion, but it produces winners and losers. And sometimes the losers wanted a different answer than you should have worked harder. People were put out of work by new industries, priced out of their homes by rising rents, and lost all their savings in financial disasters like the Darien Scheme or the South Sea Bubble. Many people looked back to the Stuarts when times had been better. Heck, even if you were in debt, a lot of people became Jacobites because they hoped that when the rightful king returned, all their debts would be canceled. And the rising middle class of the financial revolution also threatened the older aristocracy, who might look back to the Stuarts as days when their positions had been respected. They saw the capitalist revolution as corrupting and decadent, a rejection of Christian values in favor of greed and the lust for profit, subversive to natural morals and order. The economic impulse that led people to Jacobitism was a rejection of capitalism from the traditionalist feudal perspective rather than the modern socialist perspective. Jacobitism was emotional, romantic, powerful. It appealed to people whose lives had been uprooted, whose communities had changed, who saw all the jobs and money and young people going away to the big elite cities like London or up-and-coming seaports like Glasgow and Liverpool. To many people, bringing back the Stuarts promised to bring back the good old days, to turn back the clock to before 1688, before this confusing world of stock markets and national debts and foreign wars and foreign kings. Jacobitism was a genuine response by groups that felt left behind by the modern world. There were two general categories of Jacobite in practice, not in ideology. The first were the exiles. They were the ones who just could not stand to live under the new order, or they were kicked out. They went to find opportunities in countries that suited their political ideals. The international network of Jacobite exiles included Irish and Scottish merchants in France, or Scottish generals fighting for Austria or Prussia or Russia, or English Catholics in Rome, or Irish soldiers in the French and Spanish armies. It was like a little miniature British and Irish diaspora across Europe. You just go to any court in Europe, you're going to find a couple of Jacobite exiles hanging around getting jobs and seeking service. Many Jacobites, of course, ended up at the Stuart Court in Exile which in its early years was funded and housed by Louis XIV in one of his many palaces. This is how you know Louis XIV was super rich, because he had an entire palace that he just wasn't using it. He was able to hand over to James and his court. Jacobites in exile would cluster around this court, you know, scheming and competing for patronage and influence over the man they hoped would be king someday. The vast majority of Jacobites did stay home, but they had to keep their true beliefs a secret. It was like being a communist in America in the 50s. You were part of a group dedicated to overthrowing the powers that be. Even though it was a major dissident movement throughout England, Scotland, and Ireland that rejected the Glorious Revolution, there were a lot of them. Being revealed as a Jacobite was very dangerous. You could get executed. They behaved like secret societies with codes and meeting houses and intrigue and espionage. They would weave the white cockade, the Jacobite symbol like a white ribbon, into their blankets or disguise it in their writings and books. This makes it very hard to tell, even today, who was and who wasn't a committed Jacobite because of all this secrecy. Don't let this fool you, though. The Jacobite movement was very strong and not just in Scotland and Ireland. Many Tories, members of the opposition party in parliament, were widely believed, sometimes accurately, to have Jacobite sympathies. England had a strong Jacobite presence throughout this whole period, both among the nobility and among the common people. There was an aesthetic appeal to the Stuarts and Jacobitism, especially since they seemed to represent an emotional and genuine counterpart to the cold, logical, capitalist world of the New Order. It was dangerous and rebellious. Lots of people want to be part of something cool and secret, something that stands against the man and the establishment. A vast network of Jacobites was always waiting in Britain for the right moment to rise in favor of the rightful king. So now we understand how the Jacobites challenged the status quo. It wasn't just a battle for whose butt sat in the shining chair. The Jacobites presented an opposing worldview, an alternative to the new order of capitalism's centralized government and imperial power. The cause of the Stuarts had morphed into something bigger than a family trying to regain the throne. It was a battle for the shape of the future of Britain. After the failure of the war in Ireland in 1690, James and his family returned to exile in France, living off the generosity of Louis XIV. Plans and plots to restore their family were proposed, but none of them ever panned out. Stuart Luck. In 1697, the Nine Years' War ended and England and France were suddenly at peace. James II would never set foot in his homeland again, and by 1701 he was on his deathbed. But his cause would not die with him. In James's last few days, Louis visited his fellow Catholic monarch and made one last promise. I come to tell your majesty that, whenever it shall please God to take you from us, I will be to your son what I have been to you and will acknowledge him as King of England, Scotland, and Ireland. So after James's death in 1701, Louis XIV recognized his son, James Francis Edward Stuart, as King James III of England and the VIII of Scotland, the new hope of the Jacobite cause. To the new order, James Francis Edward Stuart would only be known as the Pretender. I will variously call this guy James, James III, or The Pretender, whenever it suits me. Remember when James had a son and the English Protestants lost their minds because this was the new heir? This is the guy. All grown up. Now, James Francis Edward Stuart probably would have made a much better king than his father. He was flexible where his father was stubborn, generous where his father was tight-fisted, and tolerant where his father was dogmatic. Unfortunately, James was a weak character with no real presence or charisma. He was just a mild, nice guy who would very much like his throne back, but he lacked any real force or energy. He was also hilariously, unusually unlucky, even for a Stuart. There was a change in management in Britain as well. Mary had passed away in 1694, Eight years later, William of Orange was out riding when his horse stepped in a molehill and tripped, throwing William from the saddle and breaking his collarbone. William died from this injury in 1702, and for years afterwards, Jacobites would offer secret toasts to the little gentleman in the black waistcoat, a secret reference to the mole that dug the hole that tripped William's horse and caused the hated usurper to die. Okay, Jacobites, I mean, that's not as clever as you guys think it is. You might as well just say Orange Man Bad. Literally, because it's William of Orange. The Jacobites believed Orange Man Bad. This left the British kingdoms under Mary's sister, Anne, the pretender's half-sister and the other Protestant daughter of James II. Now, I've always liked Anne. Lots of historians never thought much of her. They basically considered her a bland, boring, fat woman with no real strength of character. If there's one thing historians of British kings and queens always seem to mention about Anne, it's that she was fat. I mean, that's, that's definitely, there's definitely a bit of sexism there, because if you look back at a lot of the English kings, before and since Anne, a lot of them boys ain't underwear models. So even if Anne was a little overweight, she also successfully fought Louis XIV to a standstill in the War of the Spanish Succession, oversaw the act of union that created Great Britain, manipulated the political parties against each other, and kept the throne from falling back into the hands of the pretender. Heck, I would give her an A out of all the Stuarts, because she was technically a Stuart. Best Stuart monarch right here. Poor, underappreciated Queen Anne. But the Jacobite moment came in 1708, when the pretender had just turned 20. The War of the Spanish Succession, another long, big war between England and France, this is number two out of seven, began in 1701. By 1708, Louis XIV decided that the time was ripe for another Jacobite rebellion, another bite at the apple. The Act of Union had just been passed, and Scotland was on the verge of revolt. With most of the British army fighting the French in Europe, this was a golden opportunity. Louis began to gather an invasion force to set sail for Scotland to try and restore the Stuarts, and James Francis Edward Stuart prepared to return to the island he had not seen since he was a baby. But the 1708 scheme was a rolling dumpster fire from the get go. First, the invasion had to be delayed when James came down with measles, then, the French fleet ran into issues and took forever to get on the way. When they finally did arrive off Scotland, they found the Royal Navy just sitting there waiting for them, and the French Admiral just said, nah, nope, and turned back. Despite James almost begging him to continue the mission, the Admiral just turned around and went back home. The pretender had seen his lost kingdoms from the deck of a ship, but he got no closer. Poor James had to go back to France and stare at the ceiling for a few more years while the French court stopped returning his phone calls. The end. So this little adventure sometimes gets called the 08, but it was really so pathetic it shouldn't even have a name. But it does highlight a couple of key problems that all Jacobite schemes would have. The first was British intelligence, which is always going to get you. Almost every single big chance for a Jacobite invasion was ruined by the fact that the British had spies everywhere, the famously high-quality British intelligence services were created in this period, and they were almost solely focused at their beginning with the uncovering Jacobite plots, both at home and abroad. At one point, key members of the French court, some of Louis XIV's top ministers, multiple members of the Jacobite court, and several of the highest English Jacobites were all British informants. They were double agents. The British had money, and money talked. Any major conspiracy was easily uncovered, and the Royal Navy always conveniently popped up whenever the French tried to leave port. British intelligence will constantly pop up in this story as one of the biggest reasons why the Jacobites always failed. Another problem was the lack of communication between Jacobites in exile in Europe and Jacobites at home. It was hard to get those messages passed back and forth, and odds were that British intelligence was reading those messages anyway. The Jacobites on either side of the English Channel would get critical information too late for it to be useful, or they would never get it at all. Yet another problem was France's ambivalence to helping the Jacobites. The Jacobites always knew at their core that their plans would never work without a foreign power, and since France was always hostile to Great Britain, they were the obvious candidate. But French rulers and ministers were super skeptical about Jacobite schemes, and they didn't put too much energy into the plans. There was also the little fact that by threatening an invasion, but not actually trying to invade, the French were able to distract and scare the British with very little effort. Low cost, high reward. Finally, there was the core problem of invading Britain in any time period. The Royal Navy and the weather just combined to prevent a French fleet from being able to cross the English Channel. The weather, in particular, just seemed to hate the Stuarts, to the point that James III was said to be cursed. Something always went wrong when he went to sea. Storms, enemy activity, sickness, you name it. Stuart luck. Anyway, after the failure of the 08, Jacobite's strategies for bringing James back to the throne turned towards peaceful options. And what's wild is that this was a real possibility. One thing the Glorious Revolution had not done was banned James II's descendants from the throne. It had just kicked James II out, but it hadn't said no child he ever had could never be king. In 1710, the Tories came to power in Parliament after the Whigs fell from favor, and a large number of Tories, who were probably secret Jacobites, were open to the idea of bringing James back. Anne was aging and had no children of her own. When she kicked the bucket, legally, her half-brother James would become king. Oh, can't have that. Remember when the Whigs were trying to pass a law that would ban James II from taking the throne because he was a Catholic? Well, now it was time to ban his son, and this time they succeeded. In 1701, Parliament passed the Act of Settlement, which banned any Catholic from ever inheriting the throne of England, an act that is still on the books, by the way. But this was actually a golden opportunity for the Stuarts. The act of settlement said no Catholics, but it didn't say no Stuarts. So if James just bit the bullet and changed religion to Anglican, or even just pretended to just become a Protestant on the surface, he might be invited back home and inherit the throne when Anne died. The Tories were actively lobbying for this, like, let's bring James back. He'll be all right. He'll change his religion. Until James came out and said he would never convert, never, ever. So the Tories like, huh, well, okay, who's next? Anne, for her part, had done the math. Here is what she said. I love my brother well, but I never had the least thought or desire of resigning my crown in his favor. I would not if I could, for it can never be good for England to have a papist on the throne. And I could not place him on it if I would. My people would not suffer it. So if not him, then who? Who's going to become king when Anne dies? Well, the next person in line was Catholic, and so was the next. So Anne and Parliament sat down and went down the list. Literally 56 people in the line of succession were passed over, disqualified because they were all Catholics, until Parliament and Anne finally dug up a decent Protestant who ended up being some German guy. Guess what, Mr. German guy? You get to be king of Great Britain. That German guy was Jörg Ludwig, the elector of Hanover. Hanover was a medium-sized country in northern Germany, so Jörg Ludwig was, you know, a Lutheran, not Anglican or Presbyterian. He didn't speak a lick of English, didn't even really like England. He was kind of dull, but he was Protestant, and that was what mattered. That was good enough. So, when Anne passed away on August 1st, 1714, the last of the Stuarts to hold the throne, Parliament, as had been arranged, declared Mr. German Guy as the new king. Jörg Ludwig was crowned on October 20th as King George I of Great Britain, beginning the Hanoverian dynasty that would rule until the death of Queen Victoria in 1901. Now... The shenanigans the New Order went through to find a new king were not popular, not at all. Bad enough to overthrow a Stuart King, but a foreigner? Mr. German guy who doesn't even like England gets to be our new king? Right after George's coronation, there were riots in a bunch of English towns. The Scots were still a white-hot ball of rage over the Act of Union, and the English trickery that gave them a German king made them even angrier. And the Irish... Well, the Irish were still healing from the stomping William had given them, so they were pretty quiet. But still, George's unpopularity, economic discontent, religious agitation, political divisions between the Whigs and the Tories, and most of all, Scottish hatred of the Act of Union, was an explosive combination. This was the Jacobite moment, their golden opportunity, the best chance they would ever have to restore the pretender, James III, James Francis Edward Stuart, whatever you want to call him to his throne. The British Isles were at fever pitch. If the Stuarts would ever return, there was no time to lose. It had to be now. James, his court in exile, and his secret supporters in Britain all began to plan for the coup that would overthrow the glorious revolution and restore the Stuarts to the throne. This great attempt at a comeback would happen in 1715, which is why history remembers it as the Fifteen. Could the Jacobites succeed? Could they overthrow the German usurpers and restore the rightful rulers of Britain? Would the exiled kings come home? Maybe if they got lucky? But I think we know how that goes. So we're going to conclude today's episode with a quick rundown of the first two really big attempts to return the Stuarts to power, the Jacobite Risings of 1715 and 1719, usually just called The Fifteen and The Nineteen. Spoiler alert is they both, well, fail. But why did they fail? Well, that's what we'll try to answer. George I was barely on the throne when the Jacobites, both the secret ones in Britain and the exiled ones in Europe, started to put together a coup. They began to smuggle in weapons, set aside money, feel out potential backers, and plan their moves. The operational plan for the Jacobite Rising of 1715 called for three major uprisings, each concentrated in a strongly Jacobite part of Britain. The main rising would be in southwest England, where James and his main general, the Duke of Ormond, were set to land once the uprising had begun. Then they would march towards London in a repeat of the Glorious Revolution, hopefully overthrowing the Hanoverians and reversing the tide of history. But there would also be two diversions, or secondary uprisings. The first would be in Scotland, where an uprising in the Highlands would march on Edinburgh. The second would be in northern England, where Jacobite and pro Stuart sympathies had always been strong, but critically, the uprising in northern England was not well planned and did not have an actual objective with dire consequences. Let's look at how things stood in 1715. There were a few ingredients that were necessary for any successful Jacobite uprising, which I will mention again in a couple of weeks. The first was Scotland. Scotland was both the main hotbed of Jacobite sentiment, and the place where, up in the highlands, you could find a bunch of angry violent men at any given time. So Scotland was always the ideal launch point for a Jacobite uprising, and the Stuarts had to strike when the Scots were at maximum Celtic rage in order to turn out as many rebels as possible. And in 1715, that was absolutely the case. The Scottish economy was hurting under the Act of Union, the Highlands were restless, the Episcopalians were riled up to a fever pitch, and the recent rise of George I had only made things worse. So, angry Scots? Check. But the second major ingredient was harder to come by. This was substantial support from the English Jacobites. Unlike the Scottish Jacobites, who were highly concentrated and usually relatively eager to start an uprising, the English Jacobites were much more dispersed and much more cautious. There were plenty of high-ranking English nobles and society men who were secret Jacobites with their secret Jacobite clubs and Jacobite codes and songs and Jacobite everything, but these guys never seemed to actually do much of anything. The English Jacobites were like modern-day keyboard warriors on Facebook or whatever, always talking about all the things they would do when the pretender arrived, but when the time came, they, uh, they had a thing, had an appointment, had a Put the cat out. But with the recent accession of George I and rioting in many English towns, this was one of the few times in recent history that a large English Jacobite movement could actually bear fruit. So, English Jacobites? Check. The third major ingredient was even harder to get, and that was foreign support. Foreign support usually meant France, but something had changed in the last couple of years. Britain and France were at peace. The War of the Spanish Succession had ended. One of Britain's key terms of the peace treaty was that Louis XIV had to expel the Jacobite court from his domains, so Louis told James to pack his stuff and find someone else's couch to sleep on. James was forced to move his court in exile to the nearby Duchy of Lorraine. On top of that, Louis XIV, the biggest supporter the Stuarts had ever had, died on September 1st, 1715, and the new French government placed higher priority on peace with Britain than on supporting the Stuarts. The French used the Stuarts and the Jacobites when they were useful and tossed them aside when they weren't, like a toy they didn't want to play with anymore. So that's one big ingredient missing. But the 15 would also be missing the final necessary ingredient for Jacobite success. Remember, there are four. Angry Scots, English support, French support, The fourth one was leadership. James was currently isolated in Lorraine, waiting for the plotting over in Britain to actually accomplish something, and he wasn't exactly an inspiring personality anyway. The Jacobite uprising had an appointed leader, the Duke of Ormond, but in March 1715, someone snitched, British intelligence found out, and the Duke of Ormond had to escape Britain before he was arrested. Several other generals turned down the offer to lead the uprising. This meant that the military command of the 15 fell to literally the last person anyone would have chosen, which makes sense because no one chose him. He basically appointed himself. John Erskine, the Earl of Mar, was a Scottish nobleman with a questionable reputation and zero military experience. He was known as Bobbing John because of how often he changed political factions based on what was convenient to him at the time. Mar had supported the Glorious Revolution and been one of the key Scottish supporters of the Act of Union, but in 1710, he switched sides to the Tories. His lack of principles was well known, even to George I, and when George I came to the throne, he stripped most of Mar's government positions from him. When Mar tried to approach George I at a party, the new king turned his back and refused to speak to the slippery Scotsman. And I guess that was all it took. I got insulted at a party. I guess I'm a Jacobite now. Hey, I never said all these guys were heroes. Within days, Marr was in contact with Jacobite agents, made his way back to Scotland, and within weeks, he was the new leader of the Scottish portion of the 15. On September 6th, 1715, Marr took many of his key supporters out on what was supposedly a hunt. When they were far enough from anyone who could stop them, Mar raised the standard of the pretender, proclaimed James III as King of England and James VIII as King of Scotland, and called all loyal Scots to rally to his banner. Ready or not, the 15 was on. And keep in mind, Mar basically just did this because he wanted to at this moment, not because he was part of a larger plan that had been well-coordinated and well-put together. And even though Marr was obviously a dubious character, the Scots came out. They came out in droves from the Highlands, from the Episcopalian Northeast, even from the Lowlands. Within a month, Marr had about 12,000 men under his command from all corners of Scotland. Highlanders fed up with English arrogance, Episcopalians fed up with persecution, various other Scots fed up with the Act of Union and the dominance of London. It was an enormous turnout, the largest any Jacobite rebellion would ever achieve, including the 45. All Scots wearing the white cockade and brandishing muskets and swords and pistols and knives to fight for the Stuarts, to undo the glorious revolution, and to reestablish the separate kingdom of Scotland. To turn back the clock. To turn back the arc of history. The planned uprising in Northern England got off to a strong start, too. As the Scots were flocking to Mars Banner, several nobles and government officials raised the Stuart Banner in Northumberland. Soon they had a sizable little army roaming around northern England, and they joined forces with a number of rebels from the Scottish border to form a combined army that sort of just wandered around with no clear goal in mind. This is where that planning part sort of came back to haunt them because they had no actual objective to try and achieve. The Northern English Uprising spent more time arguing over what to do next than actually doing anything, kind of like some families on vacation. Say, where was James III of England and 8th of Scotland? Where was the pretender? Well, remember the plan? There was supposed to be a major uprising in southwest England, and once this had happened, James would cross from France to lead them to victory. So the man who would be king was currently in disguise in a French port because he was still banned from France, technically, waiting to get word of the successful uprising. But James would be waiting a long time because British intelligence, which is always going to get you, had already uncovered and busted up the uprising before it even began, the uprising in southwest England. And the army had scooped up most of the notable Jacobites and thrown them in jail before they could even start anything. And this was supposed to be the main event. But again, we have that problem of poor communication. James didn't know that the uprising had been thwarted because no one told him. So he sat in northern France for weeks while events in Scotland and northern England marched on without him. Stuart Luck, aren't you supposed to be in charge of this thing, dude? So anyway, by October 1715, the Earl of Mard had around 12,000 men under arms near Perth. This included masses of Scottish Highlanders, along with many regiments of Scottish Episcopalians, all bearing the white cockade ready to fight for their rightful king and overthrow the Hanoverians, the largest army that any Jacobite leader would ever have on British soil. The Jacobites had complete control of Scotland north of the town of Stirling. Their only opposition was about 2,000 government troops under John Campbell, the Duke of Argyle. It was the opportunity the Stuarts had been waiting for. They had launched a great uprising. It had succeeded. Everything had gone right. But Stuart Luck was about to strike again in the form of the Rebellion's leader. The Earl of Mar was a procrastinator. The worst kind of procrastinator. The one who waits way too long to do the thing he really needs to do and lets the problem get completely out of control. So even though he had vastly overwhelming numbers, a lot of momentum, and a bunch of people yelling at him to do something, Marr waited. He said he was waiting to raise more money and for James to arrive. But waiting for more money didn't make sense since the longer he waited, the more money he spent paying his army. And as for the second, no one knew where the heck James was, so it didn't matter. The longer he waited, the more the time the Hanoverian dynasty had to get its crap together and crush the fifteen. When Marr did finally do something, he did the worst thing possible. He divided his army. He sent a small force of Scottish Highlanders in an attempt to take Edinburgh by storm, and when these guys failed, they ran south to join up with the Jacobite army that was still bouncing around northern England. Here, again, leadership problems ruined everything. The Scots and the English were arguing over what to do next. The Scots wanted to move north and take Edinburgh. The English wanted to march south into Lancashire. But no one seemed to think of marching north to join the Earl of Mar and crush the government forces between them like a bug. The English army coming from the south, Mar's army coming from the north, catch the government army in a vise and destroy it. But no one seemed to really think of that. This is all that poor planning. So the Northern English uprising ended up wandering south to do. something. No one's really sure what. Yeah, guys, if you think you're hearing me get frustrated, you're right. I'm here 300 years later talking in this microphone, and I'm just annoyed with these people. The 15 has everything on its side. All the factors, all the big things have lined up for them. It's the best chance they're ever going to get. And you can see them throwing it all away. Mars' procrastination enabled the Duke of Argyle to scrape together reinforcements to face the Jacobites. And by early November, he had around 4,000 men. The government forces were still outnumbered, but only by 3 to 1 instead of 6 to 1 now. So, progress. On November 10th, after a full 6 weeks of doing jack squat, the clan chiefs and the other generals finally persuaded Mar to lead the Jacobite army south. Argyll marched out to meet him, and the two armies headed for a collision, the battle that would decide the fate of Britain, the climax of the 15 Argyle moved faster than Marr, since the Jacobite general wasted a day reviewing his troops on parade. Why? This let Argyle choose a key spot of high ground overlooking the main road near the small town of Sheriff Muir. Argyle positioned his troops in battle order on the ridge. The British soldiers, English and Scottish soldiers, slept on their muskets, waiting for the approach of a Jacobite army that outnumbered them three to one. On the morning of November 13th, 1715, Marr's forces deployed into battle formation and began to creep south. When Mar received word of Argyle's position around midday, he was about to pass him by. Marr waited three hours, why, before turning the Jacobite army to face their opponent. The Scottish generals and clan chiefs were steaming at Marr's incompetence, and they were bickering and complaining as they approached the battlefield of Sheriff Muir. Because of Mars' poor tactics and leadership, the Jacobite army lurched forward in an uneven formation in the cold afternoon of the Scottish autumn. The government forces stood their ground as the Scottish rebels closed in. Thanks to the lopsided position of both armies, the Battle of Sheriff Muir began with the weakest part of Argyll's line facing the strongest part of Mars' line, and vice versa. The Highlanders let out a furious scream as they charged, tartans flying, pipes playing, and swords waving. They smashed into the left side of Argyle's line with a crunch, slashing and stabbing and yelling. It was the Highland Charge, the same thing that had happened at Killer Cranky, the seemingly unstoppable assault of furious clansmen out for blood. The Highlanders shattered the left of the government battle line, sending the enemy infantry scattering in panicked retreat. But it was opposite day on the other side of the battlefield, here, the Duke of Argyll led his cavalry in a number of great charges. After three hours of heavy fighting, they finally caught the Jacobites out of position and rode them down. Only then did Argyll learn that as he had beaten the left side of Mar's line, Mar had beaten the left side of his line, and so they had both sort of equaled each other out. Marr himself spent the battle in confusion, not giving any orders, even when Argyll was destroying his left wing. Forces stood waiting for their commander to tell them what to do, as valuable daylight was lost. By twilight, the sun was sinking, and Argyle only had a thousand exhausted men left standing, while Mar still had four thousand fresh troops ready for battle. This was the moment, the time to finish the victory. But Mar waited, and waited, and waited. Finally, he ordered his army to advance, but it was too late. The sun went down, and instead of risking a night attack, Marr made the decision to retreat, even though an attack, even this late, probably would have succeeded. The battle of Sheriff Muir was over. And this battle is kind of incredible because of how actively Mar screwed everything up in the worst way possible. Even the government officers, the guys on the other side, admitted that if he'd attacked at the last minute, that he would have won. He had a three to one advantage in numbers, probably better soldiers, and had the battle almost won. But still, somehow managed to blow it. It was like spiking the football five yards from the end zone. One of the Highland chiefs yelled in frustration, Oh, but for one hour of Dundee. Basically, if Marr could have been replaced by the Viscount Dundee, the charismatic general killed at Killer Cranky in 1689, for just a tiny sliver of time, the Jacobites would have prevailed. But he wasn't, and they didn't. Sheriff Muir was a disaster for the Fifteen. The Highlanders were genuinely shocked that Marr had botched everything so badly, and from that point on, most of them went, began to desert, just go home. Soon, Mar's army began to disintegrate, with men just picking up and leaving, because after that fiasco, who would stick around? All over Scotland, nobles and clan chiefs began to openly side with King George. No one could really believe that Mar had played such a good hand so badly, and this caused many Scots to lose all faith in the Jacobite cause. According to one author writing three years later in 1718, By this battle the heart of the rebellion was broken. The Earl of Mar was balked of his design. His undertaking for a march to the south was laid aside and never attempted afterwards, and his numbers daily decreased so that he could never gather such an army again. It got worse. Because on the very day that Mar was losing a battle he really should have won, the Jacobite army in northern England ceased to exist. They had puttered around with no real objective for over a month before being cornered by government troops in the town of Preston near Liverpool and forced to surrender. Several of the leaders, those that didn't escape, were executed, and that was the end of the 15 in England. And now, guess who decided to show up? James III finally landed in Scotland on December 23, 1715. After months of waiting for the rebellion in southwest England that never came, he had tried to catch a ship to Scotland, was delayed by sickness and the weather because of course he was, and only arrived in time to see everything falling apart. James had no new ideas and no new plans, and was just generally confused by the massive failure he found. Imagine this poor dude though. He arrived expecting to join a winning team, but he finds them getting rocked in the fourth quarter. James had set foot on the island of his birth for the first time since he was a baby, just in time to realize that he had lost. Now, if James had been a different person, if he had been his son Charles, for instance, he might have been able to rally the Jacobites and rekindle the flame of rebellion. Instead, he was just so gloomy and tired that he just ended up making everyone else more depressed. The Stuart's bad luck seemed to keep piling up. Argyle was advancing north, and now he outnumbered the Jacobite army. A Spanish ship carrying money to help fund the uprising sank in a storm. James got sick again, and by the time he recovered in January 1716, there was nothing he could do. It was hopeless. Nothing against the guy, but one historian has literally described James III as a a born loser, and it's kind of hard to argue with that. On February 4th, James and the Earl of Mar abandoned their army and left Scotland for exile. The army dispersed behind them, every man for himself, with most of the Jacobite leaders fleeing to the European continent. The 15 was over. The pretender would never return to Britain. King George I and the Hanoverian dynasty reigned supreme. The 15 would ultimately be the largest of all the Jacobite uprisings, and this makes sense. It was the one with the most potential. It had all the circumstances on its side. Timing, popular unrest, large turnout, and maximum Scottish anger over the act of union. It started well and it had every chance of success. Even without French help, even with Stuart Luck, it almost did succeed. But poor leadership ruined the 15. You could put Michael Scott from the office in charge of the 15, and he wouldn't do worse than the Earl of Mar, and James was about as inspiring as a can of pork and beans. Goes to show, in life, you can be dealt a winning hand, and still lose if you play it badly enough. James and the Jacobite court in exile wandered around Europe for a while, until they finally settled in Rome, this time living off the generosity of the Pope it seemed like the Jacobite cause was in ruins, until one last chance seemed to offer itself. In 1718, Britain and Spain went to war, and Spain decided to take a leaf from France's book and pull Louis XIV's favorite trick, get Britain off your back by starting a fire in their backyard. The Spanish government got in touch with the Jacobite court, and together they hatched a new plan to land in England and Scotland with a mixed force of Spanish troops and Jacobite exiles. Hopefully, they could rally the Jacobites once again. Maybe, just maybe, there was one more chance. What do you guys think? Show of hands, do they have a chance? Do they have a chance? The Jacobite Rising of 1719, guess what it's called, just guess, yep, it's the 19, was probably the most pathetic fiasco yet. The main invasion force set sail from France to try and land in England about the same time that James was setting sail from Italy to meet the invasion force. But as always, as soon as James Stewart set foot on a ship, everything went to hell. The skies opened up and a massive storm wrecked the invasion fleet and delayed James's arrival by a month. Only the secondary invasion fleet made it to Britain, and this force landed on the Scottish coast on April 14th. Under the military command of John Murray, the Earl of Tullibardine, the army set up at Iliandonan Castle. They had about 300 Spanish Marines and a horde of high-ranking Jacobite exiles who expected to raise the Highland clans just like in 1715. But then they learned that the main invasion fleet had been scattered and Tullibardine said, we, sh- we should probably go. This is, an- this is not going to pan out. Another Jacobite general, James Keith, was so angry at the idea of retreat that he told the spanish ships to sail off and leave them there great guys now you're alone and you're stranded the jacobites managed to round up about a thousand highland clansmen to fight for the pretender note that is eleven thousand less than came out for mar and that's pretty bad since mar was an idiot but they still might have had a chance if the royal navy hadn't suddenly come roaring in blasted Iliandonan Castle to bits, and forced the Spanish garrison to surrender. This left Tullabardine sitting high and dry with a thousand Highlanders, no more weapons, no fleet, and no means of communication. Uh, well, guess we'll still go for it. We'll see what happens. The Jacobite army collided with a force of government troops on June 10th, 1719, in the Battle of Glen Shiel. The government army bombarded the Jacobites with mortars before launching an aggressive attack that shattered the rebels in a matter of minutes. The Highlanders fled into the night, the Spanish troops surrendered, and the Jacobite leaders made their escape. Almost all of them made it back to Europe, unhurt except for their pride. And that was the end of the 19. James never even got within sight of Britain this time. It was one more disappointment in a lifetime of disappointments. James Francis Edward Stuart, James III to his friends, the pretender to his enemies, the man who would be king, returned back to Rome. It appeared that the exiled king was in exile for good. The failures of the 15 and the 19 come down to lots of factors. Some factors they couldn't change: the weather, the military and financial resources of the new order, and of course, Stuart luck. There was also poor communication, poor planning, and especially for the 15, poor leadership. The two biggest factors, though, were lack of sustained support from an outside power, like France or Spain, and the lack of a major uprising in England. In both uprisings, the Scottish Highlanders had been the bedrock of Jacobite support, but in neither uprising was that enough. In the future, the Jacobites would need outside support and English support to succeed, But with Europe at peace, and England apparently accepting their new Hanoverian kings, neither one seemed to be available. The Jacobite cause had started strong. It had many backers, many supporters, many reasons to succeed. It positioned itself as an alternative to the new order that it alienated so many people. But by 1720, only 32 years after the Glorious Revolution, it seemed to have run its course. By all appearances, the Jacobite cause would die not with a bang, but with a whimper. Stuart Luck had finally, irretrievably, won. After the failure of the 19, the Jacobite court ended up settling down in Rome under the protection of the Pope. They would spend the next three decades camped out in Popeland, bickering, scheming, and plotting as the world moved on. The Jacobite court in exile seemed frozen in time, with fellow exiles arguing over positions and titles that meant nothing to anyone but themselves. As the years went by, the Jacobite cause seemed to fade into irrelevance. James Francis Edward had given up all hope, spending his time in prayer. His court languished in the pampered, luxurious isolation of Catholic Rome. History had left the Stuarts behind. Their plots, their plans, their ideas seemed increasingly ludicrous and far-fetched. Nothing could break James out of his gloomy inertia. And can you really blame the guy? His very birth had caused the glorious revolution that drove his father from power. He had seen his hopes crushed in the 08, the 15, and the 19. Even the weather seemed to hate him. He wasn't incredible, he wasn't a great guy, but he seems to have been a decent guy. He didn't really deserve everything that happened to him. But he wasn't the man to give the Jacobite cause hope or pride or real leadership. But on December 31st, 1720, James's Queen Maria gave birth to a son. And this son would be the man to give the Jacobite cause hope and pride and leadership. His name was Charles Edward Stuart, and he would become known to the British public as the Young Pretender. But he is better known to history as Bonnie Prince Charlie. It was Charles Edward Stuart more than anyone else, who would come to believe in the Jacobite cause. He would grow up to be a tall, red-headed prince with immense personal talent and charisma, a born leader who believed he could return his family to its rightful place on the throne of Great Britain. And most important of all he was lucky. Many, many people thought the Jacobite Wars were over, but Charles was about to prove them all wrong. In 1745, he and the Jacobite cause would shake the new order and the British Empire to its foundations. The glorious revolution, the financial revolution, the future of Britain and America and the world, everything would stand on a knife's edge in 1745 when Bonnie Prince Charlie arrived in Scotland. Maybe it was finally Finally, time for the Stuarts to get lucky. Hey, thanks a bunch for sticking with me so far and coming along in my very first series. Thank you also for your continued support of this podcast. If you like what you hear, please tell your friends about it. If you don't, tell your enemies about it. If you want to read some of the stuff I've written or just check out a bunch of my ramblings, go to my website and leave a comment at unknownsoldierspodcast.com. I am on Facebook and Twitter at UNK Soldiers Pod, or you can email me at unknownsoldierspodcast@gmail.com. at gmail.com. I love feedback. I live for feedback of any kind. So message me or email me or do whatever you like. I want to know what you think. Next week, we will meet Prince Charles Edward Stewart the great romantic hero of Scottish legend, and we will follow him into the dramatic Jacobite rising of 1745. Will the exiled kings return? Will the new order be overthrown? Will the courage of the Scottish Highlanders and the leadership of Bonnie Prince Charlie be enough to turn the tide of world history? Tune in next week to know what happens. But before that, there are some people I need to introduce. They've been in this story the whole time, but I haven't given them a real introduction. I originally had a whole section introducing them, but it made the episode too long, so I broke it off, and I turned it into its own supplemental short round. We're going to talk all about the most iconic combatants of the Jacobite Wars, the Scottish Highlanders, in this special supplemental short round. Think of it as 11.5, episode 11.5. It's a critical part of the story, an important bridge between episodes 11 and 12. Plus, I know you guys want to hear all about the kilts and the bagpipes and the claymores and the fiery cross. So I will see you on Friday for that, and tune in Monday to continue the story of the 45 on Unknown Soldiers.